And so in the summer of 2017, we have the formation of all of these funds. Well, now here in the summer of 2018, a lot of them are hitting their, the end of their one-year lockup. That means that the LPs in those funds are now looking at, at a down 50% year, and they're saying, hey, I want to redeem out of that fund. That means forced selling on behalf of all of these new crypto funds that have popped up. So I think that that could take prices artificially lower. But again, I think that the price of something like Bitcoin is very attractive at these levels. When you say artificially lower, that's based on what? I mean, that implies that right here it's fairly valued. And how would you come up with a fairly valued number for any cryptocurrency? <laughs> well, let's be fair. A lot of the coins, I think, especially in the long tail of these coins, a lot of the ICOs that we've seen over the past year are still very overvalued. But when I look at something like Bitcoin, I'm very, very constructive. And that's because it has the mind share, right? Most people know about it. It has the distribution. So if we think about all of the countries around the world, almost every major country has a fiat on-ramp where people can use their US dollars, their British pounds to go ahead and buy some Bitcoin, right? And no other coin has that kind of distribution. In addition, Bitcoin is also the safest from a regulatory perspective. So while we're not sure of which coins might be declared securities by the SEC, Bitcoin and Ethereum are the only ones that are on the safe side of that fence right now, right? And then lastly, I think Bitcoin is the only one that's demonstrated its real use case and traction, right? So if you think about Bitcoin's ability to move value around the world and to store it, it's actually happening today. People are using it for that exact purpose. It's not like people are hearing about how Uber is going to change transportation and they haven't seen it yet. No, people are riding in the cars today with Bitcoin. One stores away Get back homeward One stores away To get back home Sleep pretty darling Do not cry And I will sing a lullaby Welcome to the Noted Podcast. This is episode 20, and we're joined today with Gabor Gerbex from Van Eck. Gabor, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. And I have my co-host here with me, Bitstein, also known as Michael Goldstein. How are you, Michael? Howdy. I'm doing great. Uh, I wanted to have Gabor on the podcast because we've had technology people, you know, that are focused on what, what's going on in the Bitcoin network itself. Uh, we've had economics folks uh, like Saifedean who are talking about sound money. Really, I think what we're seeing developing around Bitcoin is the financialization of Bitcoin, integrating it with the traditional financial system so that investors beyond just retail investors buying on the spot market can get exposure, whether it's at the uh, you know large institutions or high net worth individuals or people who are just speculating with futures or whatever it may be. So Bitcoiners don't really understand or are skeptical of the existing traditional financial system. And uh, some of them even think there might be some conspiracies going on about uh, price manipulation or suppressing the price of Bitcoin or uh, doing things like that. So I, I wanted to have Gabor on and, and talk through these issues and kind of clarify what is Vanex past uh, with regards to sound money and what what do you kind of see in, in, in the present and future? Um, so welcome, Gabor. Well, thank you. So it looks like we have a lot to cover. Uh... Yeah. So what, what's your background? How did you get interested in Bitcoin? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm uh, Gabor Gorbach, Director of Digital Asset Strategy at Vanek. Um, originally Hungarian, that means I was born in Hungary and raised until I was a teenager there and uh, came to the United States for my university studies. And uh, I got interested in Bitcoin in 2012 uh, when I was uh, doing some research uh, by myself. Uh, during my uh, spring uh, in at Williams in 2012, uh, the connection was I was doing research about the internet and um, and system and complex systems that are hard to destroy, and the thought of having a system that is really hard to destroy, uh, such as Bitcoin, w was of interest to me. So that's when I uh, learned first about Bitcoin. I, uh, you know, with, with my student budget, invested a little bit, uh, and and it's it's been of interest uh, ever since. Uh, the additional note is the, the concept of uh, you know sound money and portable uh, assets to various uh, countries was of interest to me because my family has uh, suffered through two totalitarian regimes uh, first national socialists my grandparents and and uh, some of my parents' property has been confiscated the generation after during communism in Hungary so you know, the concept of uh, non-sovereign controlled money and the possibility of it uh, has always been um, of interest personally. Um, professionally, uh, I joined uh, uh, VanEck uh, uh, in 2014, right after my graduation uh, from uh, Williams College. And uh, my background is in mathematics and, and, and complex systems and distributed systems. Um, and uh, so I started at VanEck uh, and working on the ETF product development team, uh, building new funds. and. I joined Vanek because Vanek had a history of uh, creating intelligently designed uh, products that offer exposure to asset classes that are often underappreciated in the financial uh, ecosystem. Um, Vanek as a firm has been uh, established in 1955. Uh, John Vanek, uh, our founder, uh, is, has created, started investing in uh, international stocks. As, as a way to invest into the post-World War Reconstruction. And uh, so that, that was in 1955 in the um, kind of early international stocks read position where Bitcoin is today, believe me or not, in the United States in the 50s. So there was a novelty area created the first uh, um, international stock-oriented mutual fund in the U.S. And... Uh, Around 10 years later, um, he, while having uh, two kids, decided to do a PhD in economics uh, under at NYU under uh, Ludwig von Mises. And uh, you know, this 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 is an odd scenario. Here's a very busy man who builds one of the <laughs> top international stock uh, funds and and and, and you know, taking an opportunity to study under von Mises at, at the evening school and. And he caught the gold bug uh, in the in the 60s. Uh, sold 80% uh, of uh, of his international stock holdings and investments, and invested it in, in gold. Uh, back then, uh, gold was uh, packed uh, and it was trading at $35 per ounce. And uh, at that point of time, no one has has been thinking about inflation being a problem. And as we know, in the 70s. Uh, Inflation became a problem, and gold uh, skyrocketed from thirty-five dollars per ounce to around eight hundred dollars uh, per ounce. Uh, and uh, gold has also established itself from uh, the first uh, you know, gold investment uh, 
upon from Mr. John Van Ack to today to be a safe haven asset, uh, currently having around uh, seven, uh, $7.4 trillion outstanding above ground gold, which is actually, if you think about it in uh, physical amounts, it's about three and a half uh, Olympic size swimming pools if you mount it down. That's the total amount of gold outstanding today. But, so Mr. Van Eck was uh, really a person who has invested in gold at the stage where Bitcoin was probably in 2012 <laughs> and as a, as, a, as a safe haven asset. And we do, like today we do, um, we are obviously well known from our gold investments. We uh, have, uh, we have built a very an established uh, ETF business and offered, uh, offer specialty exposure to emerging markets. We have established uh, US equity funds that kind of still have the old concept of looking beyond what the financial services offer. Right. Um, so, in in the, it, it makes sense to to me that with that kind of history, that Van Eck would be at the forefront of Bitcoin investment products uh, for traditional financial services, and um, so there's we've we've heard different kinds of products coming out. Uh, we've heard about futures, and now those are being traded. You know, CME, CBOE. Um, I guess we can start with what is a future because I think that a lot of people in our audience um, they might just know what SHA two fifty six is. They don't necessarily know what a future is. So do do you want to start with like the basics? We don't have to get into too much of the details, but yes, absolutely. So um, we we think about um, investing in Bitcoin similarly to investing in gold. Uh, back in the 60s, there were uh, no mutual funds <laughs> that invested in gold. There were no instruments that offered um, efficient um, investing capability and opportunity to investors of all sorts. Uh, so and, you had to just go and buy your Krugerrands from yeah. a gold dealer and take possession of the gold. Exactly, and that was that was gold investing, and you know, stock investing. Another fifty years before was, was similar. You really had to go up to the company and invest and. Uh, so the, these processes made them more efficient. The um, so first let's let's just look at so Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin was in 2012. I remember how you know, Bitcoin was trading in uh, in Hungary. <laughs> what so the tra trading is, is this is what Bitcoin trading looked like. You know, someone had Bitcoins and someone someone else wanted to buy. I wanted to buy a Bitcoin. So. You would send money to a random person, uh, which is what I did in Romania. Uh, Cash to, in the mail. Uh, actually, through Western Union, okay. uh, and uh, then you would get different emails. Want you know your um, your public key in an email and your private key in a physical letter. So uh, <laughs> your Bitcoin trading has come far from uh, yeah. from from that stage, and we, we've seen the introduction of uh, different, uh, mostly uh, centralized uh, digital asset trading platforms, uh, offering easier tradability. Well, these platforms are more a, mostly uh, unregulated. Uh, today and they are nowhere close to the standards of uh, what trading is on on on, on say Wall Street and, and, and other sort of uh, asset classes, and actually that's where Wanex sort of uh, came in into the picture. We realized that the current uh, infrastructure is lacking, and and there were questions around how do you price Bitcoin? So what's the right price for Bitcoin? How do you trade Bitcoin so that it does not impact the underlying price in an efficient way? You know, all these practices have been established by the financial services industry, but has not been applied to the digital asset space and, and Bitcoin specifically. Uh, and Bitcoin specifically because it's probably the only asset today that has 
the maturity and the underlying infrastructure and, and core principles that is suitable to a full financialization. And so, so that's kind of the background and different instruments, right? Like how do you invest in, in, in Bitcoin? The reason, so futures contracts, um, um, again, maybe an interesting example in the commodity space, the first futures contracts were developed for, for gold and oil in the 70s. Uh, and that was one way to uh, trade the, the underlying commodity without actually taking custody of it. Um, that, and uh, that was useful because if you traded a thousand barrels of oil, you didn't want to deliver it in your backyard or, you know, uh, 500 bars of gold that's that's hard to move. It's very risky and it's expensive. So that's what futures contracts do. And uh, so the same concept has been uh, applied to Bitcoin. Uh, and today there exists uh, two um, cash settled futures contract and con contracts for, for Bitcoin, uh, one from uh, the CBOE and one from the CME. And what cash settled means that you can buy in US dollars or fiat terms, hard hard money terms, if you will, and uh, and 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 basically get exposure to the price of Bitcoin. So that's you know, that's one way to to invest in, in in Bitcoin. The reason why futures contracts exist today, uh, you know, versus just physically buying it, is because uh, from a regulatory perspective, it's really hard to hold digital assets. So the, your traditional custodians do not hold digital assets on balance sheets. Your your holdings are not guaranteed, and 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 if you compare that to um, say your Coinbase's and, and centralized exchanges of the world, those are companies that are private companies and have no responsibility to <laughs> to make their investors whole. So a futures contract is a development um, to the direction of institutionalizing that. Um, so conceivably, space. if we have. Uh, qualified custodians that are well capitalized, like a BNY Mellon comes out with, hey, we will custody your, your Bitcoin private keys if you are a financial institution, then we could see that there would be less demand for futures? Or do you think that there, there's, there's going to be complementary in that regard? So um, there's from, from lessons that we have learned from the commodity space, they are going to be complementary because some, uh, some traders and investors prefer to invest in futures and, and vehicles that, uh, that are futures oriented. They don't intend to take custody and assume that extra risk, even if it's a, a larger uh, player. But some, um, some investors prefer to hold physical um, well, physical Bitcoin as physical Bitcoin gets, yeah, uh, right. uh, and it will be safer with uh, with an insured sort of product. And and the uh, what what we did is um, Vanek has applied for uh, both a, a futures based ETF uh, as well Bitcoin ETF that is, as well as uh, a a physical insured uh, Bitcoin ETF uh, just to make sure that you know, we will get one of those exposures and 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 help our investors get get at least one of them. Right. And how does this differ from the Winklevi ETF plans? Um, and why do you think Van Eck might have a better chance? Yes, um, <laughs> that, you know, that's, that's, that, that's the questions that I, I get often. So um, a, a few points, I, I think our, our company has has pioneered international stock investing, gold investing and has built the entire ecosystem. Uh, this was an instrumental part of building the in ecosystem for commodities uh, trading. 
I think that is well known uh, in, in, in the marketplace uh, among uh, banks, larger institutions, individuals, uh, as well as regulators. So we, you know, we have the experience and expertise to, to help asset classes and, and build them from the uh, bottom up. And uh, so that's that's you know the expertise part of it, and then there are some real big differences. Uh, so our futures ETF that we have applied for is not is futures based. So that's that's a, <laughs> and that's a big difference in itself. Then our physical ETF is uh, a few of the differences. It's an insured product. Um, why is that important? You guys probably know better than I do how many hacks, tasks, and all those things happen on on centralized trading platforms. So so holding in, uh, your money at an insured product uh, is is a as a big peace of mind for for investors. Um, then uh, another differentiation that we made is that we created the ETF so that uh, every basket and oh, that is the holdings of uh, the ETF would be 25 bitcoins. So it's really institutionally oriented because today uh, retail investors and, and you guys and I can go to uh, source Bitcoin from uh, numerous places and we might prefer to do that. But institutions legally cannot do that. So we, we, we wanted to open up the, uh, the digital asset space, Bitcoin specifically, to uh, institutional investors so that it can go through a similar maturation process that what we have seen uh, on, at the gold, on the gold end. So insurance, um, institutional orientation, um, professional management. Uh, I would also uh, emphasize that we have uh, through our German subsidiary MVIS, uh, which is around 20 guys in, in Frankfurt. We've worked with uh, most of the uh, crypto trading platforms and over-the-counter trading platforms to build out a pricing mechanism that is uh, a financial standard, uh, that is sort of regulated and, uh, and not prone to, uh, <laughs> to issues that you know, some smaller companies might have. And so that, that's very much appreciated, I think, by, by institutional investors who have a certain standard uh, that they require. And uh, some, some, and I, I don't want to, generally, I don't like to negatively talk about products, but what, what I've learned from uh, various communities and, and, and sort of like regulatory reads that the, um, the Winklevoss product, they, they run their own exchange, they run their own ETF, they run, run their own index. And, that I believe is a big issue in the in the digital asset space today um, in general. So there are, there are massive conflicts of interest on custodianship, uh, on, on, on trading. So all these uh, companies perform seven different things that are, are um, in the United States capital markets, we spent 50 to 100 years to delineate those tasks in order, in order to establish a financially stable uh, ecosystem. And some of those lessons may apply to uh, trading bitcoins and and uh, and, and other potentially other digital assets and in, in, in the regulated space. So, so that's important. And I would point out that um, that's this issue of conflicts of interest is a is a big issue with Silicon Valley companies and and digital asset trading platforms and the financial ecosystem and regulators are not liking it <laughs> which which makes sense i'm you know I'm, I'm worried when when i look at a centralized trading platform that one day uh they they'll wake up and their their general partners uh, their um you know their ceos will uh, talk to each other and run away with their assets because 
most customers do not hold their keys or ETS, not the futures one. The other one has a very kind of, I can't talk about custody details, it would be too risky here, but we have a, a hardcore key management system that uh, where, where we hold our keys and uh, and the keys are held by you know, larger institutions too for, for safety reasons. Interesting. Um, so just taking a step back, an ETF, an exchange traded fund uh, would allow people to go on the New York Stock Exchange or, you know, a, a NASDAQ, like where, where would the ETF be traded? Yes. So um, the ETF just, so ETF is an exchange traded fund. Uh, ETFs uh, today trade on, on large public exchanges and they are accessible globally. Uh, so it's a centralized but decentralized, the most decentralized financial system that exists is uh, is exchanges in the U.S. For instance, if you trade a fund, an ETF is basically the innovation of an ETF is that um, previously there existed mutual, some mutual funds. Mutual funds held one or multiple stocks. They were priced at the end of the day, and that was the only thing that an investor knew. A hedge fund is a similar type of instrument. You get a report at the end of the month. You have to sort of put your trust into the manager, pay two percent and twenty for their uh, kind of like your asset management services and then you get a report about what your gains were and you don't know anything about what really happened so and an ETF is uh, trades like a stock it, it's priced every 15 seconds uh, on an exchange its holdings are transparent and, and, and published and in a sense an ETF is the most trust minimized form of trading assets uh, in the financial ecosystem so uh, basically at, at no point uh, so at every point, the investor has uh, access to its assets, and uh, putting Bitcoin in an exchange-traded fund would enable um, institutional investors as well as retail investors to assume uh, the benefits of um, trading in a, in a well-established uh, infrastructure as well as the regulatory protection. So. For instance, uh, the the amount of cash held at accounts is uh, insured until two hundred fifty thousand dollars by FDIC standards, which is the, called the Federal Depositor Insurance Corporation. Then there's the assets that if if it's lost for whatever reason, then it's protected by the by SIPC, which is the Securities Investor Protection mm -hmm. Standards, uh, and and so so that you know that's that's a big deal from an investment protection standpoint. Second. Um, the liquidity that uh, ETFs uh, allow makes the whole process so much cheaper. So uh, basically, there's large institutions uh, in ton, like literally everywhere in the world trading assets in ETFs because they can do that very cheaply. So they don't have to pay 2% uh, fees and performance fees. They don't have to pay 1.5% transaction on AUM in and out and things like that. So that, you know, that makes... I'm not saying there's an order of magnitude to cut on trading, but there's a lot of efficiencies that ETFs bring. Also, yeah. No. Uh, well, I was wondering, wh what are the mechanics of the process when um, we, because there is the, uh, I think it's GBTC uh, trust that is traded, and it trades at a premium, uh, sometimes a very large premium over Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So how does an ETF avoid that, where basically, uh, how do you create new units when there's a demand for the ETF that causes it to, to, to diverge from the, uh, the underlying physical. 
Yes, that's actually a very good question. So a, a basic mechanism of an ETF is that every day the ETF shares is, is priced to something called net asset value. And so the, the, the value of the ETF is, is shown at the end of every day. And you can create and redeem basically every day from an ETF, which is not, not the case from something like GBTC at net asset value. So uh, that means that during the day, if you wanted to buy an ETF, you'll be, you'll be guaranteed the net asset value price and you can do that every day. So there's daily liquidity uh, versus what happens with some of these uh, pink sheets listed, um, closed end fund type of instruments. You can only redeem once a year at NAV, and if you happen to, uh, you know, go through a, a, fr a phrase where Bitcoin goes like up, say, 400%, 800%, or the other direction that you may be trading at a big premium or discount, GBTC had an average, I think, 54% uh, a premium over the past uh, year, and maximum was around 80%, which is you know, pretty crazy, and it also shows demand uh, from various investors to uh, trade Bitcoin type of instruments. And basically an ETF is just a, a more liquid, better price, more stable, more secure. And, and uh, in, in my view, it's really the trust, most trust minimized form of uh, managing um, Bitcoin in, uh, in any financial instrument. And that, that's, I think that's the key qualifier is that in any financial instrument, right? Because people, people will say like, it, isn't it ironic or there's a paradox that we're talking about the financialization of Bitcoin when like Satoshi's white paper starts with you, you, you can send Bitcoins peer to peer without going through a financial institution. And that's kind of like the starting premise of this. And here we are like undoing that from the perception of, of some people. So what like what's what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it is it's definitely uh, ironic. It's so, some some people. So first. Uh, some people will definitely stick with their peer-to-peer -peer transactions and, and Bitcoin enables that flexibility. It wasn't the case for any other financial asset and that's the beauty of it. So if I decide to hold my Bitcoin in, in whatever device or, or whatever paper wallet or, or, or form of, of storage, and I can still do that. Uh, if I Now, if you own the ETF, can you take delivery of the Bitcoins and... Do, do that directly or do you have to sell ETF and go to an exchange and buy the Bitcoins? That's a that's an interesting feature that we have contemplated and uh, at this form no and the reason why we can't we can't provide delivery for physical physical quote physical Bitcoin yeah. is uh, because the the custodian like currently the custodians are don't exist right. if there would be if there were custodians then there could be um, a chance to deliver uh, Bitcoin physically for those who want to and in fact, uh, we have, uh, so we, we run a few um, gold ETFs and one of them called OUNZ, Ounce, uh, we, we have physical delivery. So if you, if you buy, if you want to have a London bar delivered to your house, Ounce delivers. And, and so we, you know, that's our vision longer term to, to give the optionality for, for some who want to hold uh, Bitcoin directly of, of, of delivery, but right now it's not feasible because the regular it's not feasible because the regulatory and the custodianship space is growing and and it's just not there. Right, that makes sense. Um, and sorry, I, I interrupted you. Uh, you were you were talking about um, that people can have the the keys themselves, but 
in other contexts, that's really not an option, right? If, if you are like a hedge fund, you can't necessarily self-custody your assets. Yes. So um, if you're a hedge fund, actually, you can self-custody your assets for uh, for a certain um, number. And I can't remember numbers around 150 million. But think about this. Um, you are a hedge fund. You, first of all, it's a tr the, the whole point of Bitcoin is trust minimization. And we are asking for trust from these hedge funds. First of all, you trust your portfolio manager that he's not or she is not going to run away with the money. Then that this person can secure the assets. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, that you know, everything is going to be okay and I'm going to give you a report in three months. Actually, legally, hedge funds have to report uh, at the end of every quarter. So for three months, you have no idea where your assets are. And uh, so the reason, for instance, ETFs came along is because investors demanded more transparency. And through the ETF ecosystem, um, the, the investor actually owns the assets. So it's... It's like the you know the ETF holds the assets, the ETF issues shares uh, and and exchanges for a quote a basket of assets for physical Bitcoin, but that you know that asset is not with one manager. It's distributed across uh, various uh, players that are called uh, market makers that are called um, authorized participants. Those are the larger companies that trade. Uh, baskets of the the underlying assets baskets of Bitcoin exchange for baskets of uh, ETF shares so every time your assets are distributed across the most established financial um, kind of institutions versus with a hedge fund you generally have a guy or two <laughs> or, yeah. or or a few you know some people may not like the fact that it's distributed through the financial system because what happens if it goes down and that's where sort of, you know, Bitcoin comes in that you can hold it physically. So actually the, the delivery uh, concept that you mentioned here is, 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 is an interesting one. Yeah. Um, and, and what do you make of, of people who argue that uh, futures especially, and especially cash settled, because there's, there's physical settled futures, mm -hmm. uh, and we've seen Ledger X uh, have that product. Um, but with the cash settled, people argue that essentially you are inflating the supply of bitcoins and and they make the same argument with gold that like gold's price has been suppressed through futures do, do you think that there's credibility to to those claims or that it's it's more nuanced than that i you know that that's actually a top question yeah <laughs> it, it is uh for for historically uh there were all futures contracts most futures contracts were deliverable so if you had a a vast Texas uh, oil future contract. Uh, at the end of each month, you could go to a specific place where you can have your oil delivered. And uh, so everything was physically del deliverable. Um, then in the 80s, the concepts of uh, uh, cash settled futures contracts came along so that you don't have to take delivery of the underlying asset. So that created, um, you know, basically an, a new. Um, a new way to not take delivery and people just rolled their contracts when they expired to the next one and they sort of like kept their exposure effortlessly and through um through index through indexing and 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 sort of uh, smart price tracking methods uh the 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 underlying assets and the futures were 
very close to each other, if not the same. And in fact, today, the price of commodities are set by cash settle uh, futures contracts. That's, that's many people that don't know that the price of gold is actually the, uh, set by the you know, London gold price, gold mm-hmm. futures price. Uh, and the same thing with oil. And uh, so, so that, you know, that's kind of a little bit of history on whether, the, whether it inflates supply or not. Uh, this is going to be probably controversial for Bitcoiners when, <laughs> when I say this, but I do think that uh, Bitcoin's other scaling angle that is not explored widely is Wall Street. Uh, and, and these exchanges and, and, and financial uh, instruments that are designed for tradability. So financial transactions uh, in Bitcoin should take place in efficient marketplaces like the future space where there is liquidity and, and the ability to go in and out from con- near contracts effortlessly. For, for holding physical Bitcoin, you may want to hold it by yourself if you're preparing for you know, my grandparents' scenario that the state will take your money. Uh, if you are holding it as a financial investment, you might want to hold it in a physical ETF. So there are, I would say, uh, I don't think that the supply is, is actually uh, uh, increased at all. It's just another sort of uh, scaling mechanism. It's L2, if you will. Right, right. Real not L3 right now, yeah. but but in uh, on, on the street. Right. And then also, if you are, for example, a, a merchant payment processor who is taking in Bitcoins, and so you have them on your balance sheet, now you can go and hedge that in an efficient manner. And that essentially like allows you to, to continue processing payments without exposing yourself to unwanted risks. Um, on your balance sheet. Yep, uh, and and that's I think Pierre, that's crucial because, for instance, uh, gold uh, right now the market capitalization of gold is seven point four trillion. Uh, in the seventies, it was around one trillion, uh, and then it climbed up to the uh, you know two to four trillion dollar range uh, all the way until the uh, the dot com bubble. Uh, and futures contracts uh, and, and options and options on futures contracts were the one that that stabilized the volatility around gold. So people could take either side of the equation uh, and you know, they could bet up and down based on, based on market conditions. And and that so that those futures contracts and, and options on futures helped gold become uh, a safe haven asset. It, it dampened the volatility, it helped increasing the market capitalization or above ground gold market capitalization in total, and, and people could uh, safely and securely turn to gold without having the issues of huge volatility that, for instance, Bitcoin suffers from it. And one of the, in my conversations with larger banks and investors of ours, uh, and I can't name people here, yeah. but uh, those are the, really the largest guys who invest billions of dollars of, in, in various funds. They they quote volatilities as an issue uh, for Bitcoin. That is it really a safe haven asset if it loses you know 10% on a given day and bounces back? And and generally, I I tell them that hey guys, just you know futures contract just launched. ETFs are going to launch. At least we're working on creating the infrastructure so that we can launch. And in five five years down the line, where we'll have efficient futures and, and ETFs and financial products on, on Bitcoin, the volatility will be dampened, and you can actually use Bitcoin as a safe haven asset, no matter how you invest in it or hold it. Uh, and that argument tends to resonate with these larger companies because they lived through gold, they, you know, how right. gold matured. Uh, right. 
And it's interesting too because the, the volatility component, like we have to look at the sharp ratio, which is the returns on the other side. Are you being compensated for that volatility? And, and then we have the, the, the uncorrelated price action too, where that, that's interesting from a portfolio perspective. Um, and if we look at you know what's been called the Mayer multiple, which is like the 200 day moving average uh, divided by the price or the price divided by the 200 day moving average, um, we saw that with the last run up, that multiple went half as high as it went in 2013. Mm-hmm. So that means that like there was a much longer period of slowly building up and then kind of a blow off at the end, which didn't, it, it, it wasn't, um, it, 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 I, I think, I think that it's due to the growing liquidity that it didn't, uh, go run up to 40,000, uh, because there was dampening on the other side. Yeah, and, and, and that's sort of, uh, that, that I agree with you. And so there's growing liquidity. Um, obviously, the futures contracts have been introduced so, so people can express their uh, views on the other side of the trade as well, because not everyone likes Bitcoin. Like we, for instance, uh, we have a fund called Moat, uh, which is basically Warren Buffett's uh, idea of putting a moat around your investment that have sustainable kind of competitive advantages. And, Warren Buffett doesn't like gold and doesn't get the idea of safe haven asset, yeah. if you will. He, he just doesn't see cash flows and all that. But so go, just going back to safe, becoming a safe haven asset, indeed Bitcoin, because of the actual liquidity and because of increasing participations from institutions and because of what some people can take the other side of the regulated um, exchange environment through futures, it, 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 the volatility is dampened and the range is, is definitely not 2012, 2013 levels. And, and that's, that's a good sign, I, I would say. And some, sometimes Bitcoin maximalists tend to argue that you know, it's not good that these instruments come to place. But gold was the Bitcoin of the world in, in, in the 60s. And, and, and it just kind of went through this process and, and, and became the safe haven asset of the world. And that, that's that's what's I mean, in my opinion, and I could be wrong on this, but that's probably what's going to happen with Bitcoin as well. And uh, that's that's why my firm is involved to build the right market structure for it, because right now the Silicon Valley company market structure is not the right market structure. Right. Right. <laughs> and, uh, can, can I just mm-hmm. one, one more note that I wanted to make around safe haven assets and, and how people hold digital assets and, and Bitcoin specifically? Um, I personally hold Bitcoin as a risk asset because it didn't grow uh, to gold's level yet, and yeah. because of its volatility, uh, is uh, is not there yet to be a safe haven. But I have an opportunistic bet, <laughs> you know. Right. It's it's and kind of it, you're right now. Bitcoin is the present value of being digital gold in the future. Like, and we're just bringing that back to the present, and that's why there's a lot of uncertainty about what its value is today. So yeah. it hasn't realized that vision. Yes, and uh, I would say uh, because people know very little, and thank you guys for some of your educational uh, series on on on, on, uh, on on Bitcoin. People don't know very little about it. Some investors invest in it as a technology play because of the underlying uh, Bitcoin, the blockchain, blockchain part of it. Yeah. And so um, Jan Van Eck, our CEO, and I tend to look at Bitcoin right now as as it trades as is two thirds store of value and one third technology stock. And in, indeed, some days uh, you can look at it and, well, you know, there's global turmoil, there's issues with the Turkish lira or something in Venezuela and Bitcoin 
seems to be trading like digital gold. And some days where you know Facebook earnings are bad or you know, Tesla has issues and all the tech stocks are beaten up, uh, the Bitcoin is going down with the tech stocks. So it hasn't established itself firmly as digital gold yet. And they're still have interestingly trades with, with, with tech stocks. Uh, at least that's what we have yeah, uh, noted on our end. Uh, well, maybe it has to do with like the investor base. Like there's people who, uh, you know, might have made a lot of money on Facebook going up and they have, so they have a tech bent. So they're, they're not traditional gold bugs. Uh, and then you, you have people looking at the macro picture and they, they are also investing in Bitcoin. So yeah, that is interesting. Uh, Michael, did you have another question? Well, I guess the question there is, how do we get all of Wall Street to read the Bitcoin standard so they can get on the correct investor base? Well, you know, if you, I, um, I, I'm just reading it. Uh, I just got it from from a friend who is actually uh, working at, at one of the um, futures commodity merchants for one of the top uh, contracts. Is it Brooks? <laughs> yes, he is the one who recommended <laughs> to me, and I, uh, and I, uh, you know, I, I do. Uh, I just started reading that uh, the book and and I I think it's great and we have to talk about it more often and uh you know we need to for instance get it to our uh, portfolio managers and here here at Vanek people read interesting books and I think uh other parts of Wall Street are open as as well and that's that's another point I wanted to bring up that uh a lot of the times, uh, and I, I cannot say that Vanek is like other Wall Street companies because we're privately owned and the family you know, has a history of being involved in these assets, but generally Wall Street and specifically a few firms uh, like Vanek are friendlier than others and are willing to help uh, Bitcoin scale, um, you know, similarly that we've done it to, to gold. And uh, so, so Bitcoin, like, we get a lot of outreach from uh, the uh, digital asset space uh, and unfortunately I get more outreach from tech companies in centralized places and so that's why I appreciate that you guys are you know having us in, 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 in the podcast but yeah we uh, I'd be happy to uh, pass along that book uh, to some of our, our gold investors and once the uh, you know, once our ETF is coming out then uh, that might be a mandatory read for the larger allocators in the space. Have you noticed a any kind of shifts in the uh, sort of Bitcoin outlook that a lot of players on Wall Street have? Like, have you noticed a shift from technology to a digital gold thesis or um, something else? Or, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is this is good. This excellent question and. So two years ago, uh, everyone you talk with, and I'm not even going to go back to 2012 or 2013, just two years, largest CEOs and not naming anyone of the world are saying that this is a fad. It's going away. All the tulip story, you know, South China Sea type of uh, scenarios, and this is never going to work. And today we are talking about, so that that's two years ago. Today we're talking about market structure, how we are going to build an ETF, how, how are we going to make the futures contracts deliver physically and and how are we going to regulate the underlying platform? So you know, 2018 and 2019 is the year of regulation for, and that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. I'm saying it in a positive context because it will help growth, uh, liquidity, for, yeah. liquidity and growth for Bitcoin. So it's, it's interesting that the narrative has definitely shifted from a you know, totally negative, you're going to fight this off type of, thing uh, to how do we embrace it 
how do we uh, make Bitcoin part of the uh, existing financial uh, ecosystem and what exactly needs to uh, take place. And just on that end, I mean, Vanek has a lot, done a lot of work with uh, market participants of all sorts uh, from you know, APs, uh, index providers, uh, to all the way to regulators. And it's really hard uh, to uh, fight this battle uh, sort of with, with on the regulatory side. Actually, the market side is very interested. The regulators are afraid. And and again, the, the, so it's it's really our job to, to do the work. And I'd love to see more people from kind of like the, the Bitcoin space, stop eating their steaks and step it up and help me <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, make arguments on the liquidity side, do the data analysis for me, how we can satisfy creation and redemption requirements. And this is a, you know, sort of math class level heavy work that, that we need to do every day. So I think if the, if, if the mark, you know, the, if we, if the digital asset space or the Bitcoin space talk with friendly Wall Streeters more often, then we would win. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's again, it's the, the regulatory structures is kind of sort of what's the enemy that we need to change it so that these products can come to market and not the market participants. Because what, what the Bitcoin, what Bitcoiners called incumbents, incumbents want to play, right. you know, and they don't want to just you know, take over the space and stuff, but they, they want to have conversations with their kids about Bitcoin who probably own Bitcoin at this point. And, 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 and things like that. But definitely the narrative has changed to more substantive. These are the problems to solve versus we're going to dismiss this place. And, and what did you make of the announcement by ICE uh, with their backed venture? Um, I, you know, again, so th this is what I've seen. I, I'm generally more skeptical than most people in this space. A lot of larger institutions announce that they're looking at something. Uh, I, I haven't seen any substantive proof on how they're going to deliver. Often institutions have big promises and do not deliver. So I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I want to see the work. Uh, a lot, of, obviously, a lot of our funds uh, trade on, on various of those, you know, large exchanges. But I really just want to see the work. Exciting that they're going to be in the space. Uh, I just have a hard time believing that it's going to be the super large companies that are building out this space. I think the, the like our size of private companies have a better shot because we are just more flexible. And, uh, but I mean, I, I'm glad to see them. There's, yeah. you know, right now there's the optionality to apparently to have uh, you know, a physically delivered futures contract. It, it's pending regulatory approval. Um, it's good for our ETFs uh, because when you connect the futures market, so basically there's, uh, if there exists arbitrage between futures and uh, physical uh, space, then uh, you could argue that price discovery is efficient and there's more liquidity and, and in fact, ETFs can satisfy their creation and redemption requirements every day. So it's a positive development. Um, my focus is not on that those kind of projects. My focus was on pricing. Like it took, I went to Germany for six months to solve the idea of how to price a global Bitcoin product because you're pricing in Korea or or Japan or in the US and EU, they, it's very different. Well, why, and, why do prices diverge internationally? It's like if you if you do kind of the triangle of like, okay, dollar is worth this much Korean won and then it buys you this many Bitcoins and you're like, well, there's like 3%, you know, arbitrage opportunity. Why isn't someone jumping all over that? Um, are there, is it like currency controls or what, what is that? Well, part of it is just 
people don't trust the underlying uh, trading platforms, which are generally pretty websites with matching engines, but they're not real exchanges. So high frequency shops are, are sort of holding off on many of the Asian platforms. Uh, the, in the U.S., it's pretty efficient, I would say. Uh, you know, there's uh, spreads. Basically, uh, you can uh, today the the average trade on the, the top physical trading platforms in the U.S. and the EU uh, are trade within five seven basis points, which uh, is very small. So, if uh, you're looking at like uh, Coinbase Pro, Speed GDAX, yeah, and Gemini and Bitbit, Bitstamp, Bitbit, yeah, yeah, those, those guys. Those guys, those guys are good, and, and you know those 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 guys have at least some level. They're not many of them are not regulated entities. Some of them are sort of like money trans transmitters, and 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 they could do better. But uh, trading on those platforms uh, look like professional trading, uh, at least from a you know, liquidity perspective, yeah. which sort of puts me to the second question that one of the big things around an ETF is liquidity, if and and it looks like. Um, uh, and you guys know this probably better than I do. Uh, every day, so the futures contracts trade around 200, 250 million dollars uh, worth of notional um, physical Bitcoin trades somewhere between uh, you know, two to three and a half billion dollars a day. And you know, we, we have uh, this is actually our portfolio managers and our index provider entity was very happy about that because some of the funds like you know in in, in frontier uh, countries or smaller countries trade a fraction of that so bitcoin is indeed liquid the issue is that it's the the, the exchanges where it's where bitcoin trades are just not regulated so if, if right. that sort of question is solved then uh, then institutions will feel very comfortable yeah. so there's there's kind of this um this meme in the bitcoin community that and the wider crypto space once once all this infrastructure is in place and institutional investors can start, you know, dollar cost averaging into like their one percent allocation, uh, the price is going to go bonkers and and this bear market will be over. Do you do you buy that or do you think that it's going to be like a much longer process than that and and not uh, just sudden nirvana? Yeah. So the. I mean, the, the portfolio and investment case, uh, which we've written some pieces on this, some of them are more simple, others are more elaborate for Bitcoin is that it's digital gold right now. Uh, so some people argue that it could be you know, means of payment and eventually we'll get there, but probably not just yet. So um, if if all this, you know, let's just look at a scenario of you know, Bitcoin takes, say, 5% uh, of, or 10% of the uh, assets from gold as a safe haven asset that's somewhere between three and a half billion dollars to uh, 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 what is it sorry now it's uh, it's 350 billion dollars to 700 billion dollars uh, and uh, the probability of that being what 10 percent say I, I don't know yeah. some 20 percent and then you, you can kind of do the math that uh, it would help the price action but again I, I think it's the concept i don't like to talk about price right. much it's more like if you build the right market structures investors will have access to uh a, as, as you mentioned that here as well uh, an uncorrelated asset to other major asset classes a portable assets a real sort of like trust minimized um safe haven assets or store of value and i think it's going to help bitcoin grow up to the one trillion dollar range uh 
and we have seen uh, with the case of gold, gold just people don't really know the gold grew up to the one trillion dollar range in the 60s or 70s, like early 70s, and that wasn't long ago. Uh, yeah. And that was the point when volatility was dampened and it started being used as a safe haven asset. But but again, it's just the instruments have to be available in a regulated form, uh, and and you know, not just institutions. People have to be able to trust that their participation is just safe for not you know. A day, right. but ten years, <laughs> and uh, I... and then they're, they're kind of Bitcoin's only been around for nine years, mm-hmm. so it's it's very hard for people to say, well, is it going to be around for another ten years? Uh, it's very young. Yeah, and that's I think it's the it's the Bitcoin's Bitcoin community's job, and and I would like to call attention to that to make investors com- comfortable, and right now everyone is sort of. Well, not everyone, but a number of people in the Bitcoin community are, you know, is, oh, we are in the intolerant minority from sort of a Taj bug. I think that's a very interesting description. And and in some ways, I think we all need to grow up a little bit <laughs> and make sure that uh, if we if we want Bitcoin to stick around, that we make uh, our sort of you know regulators and, and investors comfortable. And it's actually not hard. Uh, it's it's a little bit of education and. I think it's worth worth the battle, <laughs> if, right. if you will. And and I, I would point out in, in in this podcast as well that uh, the the arguments that has resonated with um, larger institutions is the transparency and the underlying block Bitcoin that is mm-hmm. the underlying Bitcoin. It's just trans- relatively transparent system. And the one thing that I see as a potential danger, if that were to change. And institutions are uncomfortable with that process, then things may not move forward. So, the some of the transparency arguments around that I always get shut down in these rooms that yeah. uh, uh, on that. But I think we should keep in mind that uh, right now the reason why institutions uh, are getting more and more comfort is the transparency. Uh, on sure, like I didn't, you need still need to do AML KYC mm-hmm. type of things to find exact identities, but. Um, Bitcoin is the most trust-minimized and, and, and radically transparent system that you know have, have not existed before. So we should safeguard that too. Well, it's uh, interesting because uh, that's heavily debated uh, within the crypto space, and we have um, we have alternative uh, cryptocurrencies that are competing. You know, it's privacy versus transparency, and so like Monero and Zcash, they emphasize. The privacy aspect of it, um, and then as, as Bitcoin is financializing, we emphasize the transparency of it. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a huge debate that's that's going on. It it, it is big, and and all I can say is on, on this topic. That, well, I'm I'm cam transparency, and the reason uh, I have the chance uh, to build with Van Eck an ETF around it is because of the transparency aspect, and when 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 someone spends years and years of, of talking about the transparency and demonstrating the transparency of an asset. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of like trustless trust. You still have to build trust with your investors and you build trust through transparency and proper safeguarding. So investors prefer transparency over their privacy because they assume uh, sometimes falsely, I admit that, uh, that the institutions that are handling their uh, assets or, or safeguarding their their identity identity at least right. you know that that's kind of a slippery slope but it's um 
I think the you know the issues, and, and I'm not gonna go to specifics sort of like <laughs> tumbling mechanisms right. and 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 dark tokens is is that you can you can really actually foster illicit activity on that, and obviously regulators and enforcement agencies are not a fan of that. Right. Well, the, the, I think that from the from the privacy camp. Uh, and I, I don't want to take a side on this because I, I kind of see both sides of the argument. Yep. Um, when when a government is seizing assets, if they know if they if the government has transparency into who owns what, it just makes their job that much easier uh, to to go and seize the uh, asset. Yeah, I mean that's that's the other argument. And again, uh, that's the two generations of my family yeah. went through that. Uh, the only difference that I would say today is that uh, there's a number of uh, institutions who are sort of fighting that battle too uh, mm-hmm. and it's not on the, on the financial side of the equation uh, financial services company are sort of are fighting for uh, privacy while demonstrating transparency so it's, it's kind of it's an interesting topic yeah. that we should you know, we, we can definitely discuss uh, in, in more more detail. Uh, and then just from a, I think from an ecosystem perspective, like it goes back to the question of, do you custody it yourself or do you have someone else custody it for you? And it's the optionality that is that you can take your Bitcoins and uh, atomic swap into a privacy coin uh, and then come back to Bitcoin. And so like you, you have this kind of like optionality depending on what you per- perceive your needs to be. Yeah. So, you know, that is, there's, that's the the theory of not your keys, not your assets. Yeah. Sure, uh, some uh, there's a very small portion of the uh, of the world who's comfortable doing those types of uh, operations. The if we had obviously better user inf- interfaces for for holding assets and, and you know safe institutional backing of some sort at least, or yeah. th- that that would help. Um, I'm in the camp of uh, the the two extremes. One is you either hold your assets your uh, you know, yourself yeah. which is you know, personally that's my preference run your uh, full node <laughs> exactly and then you know, then you definitely know uh you, you can audit it's your it's your money your assets yeah. no one can take Trust it away less. unless they force you which is a problem by the way but at least to the other extreme uh give up your assets to an institution that enables you to control it and in sort of uh, in in a stress scenario so there are actually very smart ways to the ETS, for instance, distribute assets when there, there's a, it goes under stress. So we don't. Um, if if you if you think about it, there could be operational processes that hamper, like an institution's touching an asset. Should you know, should the government come in and and see? So you can you can put institutional controls over. So if if a large bank came in and and, and said that. I'm going to the the holder of the asset has to in a multi-signature wallet uh, of segregated wallet would have yeah. to sign off on a transaction uh, in order to for the assets to transfer to some wallet. Uh, you know that would be one way, for instance, to uh, hold money at a, an insured, established place while also having some level of control over your assets. So that's uh, so that, that you know that extreme to me is much better than than reading and millions or of investors holding assets on on trading platforms that are unregulated and and run by like silicon valley valley bros that are you know not exactly well worst and uh, yeah because it's funny um you know i think that like the apprehension that bitcoiners have about like a bitcoin etf 
and you know not you not holding your private keys like well let's look at what's happening today like there people have billions of dollars in coinbase uh and there it's just it's secured by their two-factor authentication and that's it uh and if that if their phone gets stolen or whatever um then then their their money is gone with very little recourse uh in, in that case so I, I see it as a strict improvement that you would uh, institutionalize it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, certainly, and and also, <laughs> what what I would point out is there's from our investor base, uh, they do not yet feel comfortable investing through those exchanges, and 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 there is there's the, we we see demand for an ETF, but again, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, and 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 the work is. is so again, some of the non-sexier things on the, uh, and and that's that's around sort of pricing, liquidity, uh, making sure that the assets are safe. And uh, I, you know, always welcome uh, the Bitcoin side of the group to come in and hang out in our Ludwig von Mises room and 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 hear about sort of like how John Vanek has built up the gold industry to to work with us and uh, and and yeah. help us make the product better because. That's the that's literally the only way to build the best product. If the if the at least in the financial thinking with the financial services mind is is to to get the right expertise and and you know, we we are open to work with the right expertise and we do already in some cases. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, do you do you have any closing thoughts? We're uh, coming up on an hour now. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I I haven't thought about any sort of like closing thoughts. I probably should have. Uh, <laughs> I I think that you know the generally. Our view here at the firm, and my view, is that uh, Bitcoin has a potential uh, to, for becoming digital gold. And those of the Bitcoin community who listen, and those of the sort of like the more institutional community who listen, uh, it, it is important for us to keep in mind and, and associate with people who do not dismiss the potential of Bitcoin. And that has been the biggest problem in Wall Street that people said it's a fad and it's dismissed. Uh, and we have seen that playing out. Uh, in, in the in the gold end and and at Vanek, uh, we think that it's sort of our responsibility to to give proper analytics, proper sort of like diligence and proper attention to something that may be transformational. Um, my parting thoughts for the Bitcoiners is to help us do that, yeah. <laughs> and you know reach out or whatever Twitter or <laughs> really any source. We we are in all of those platforms that you probably use and. And for the institutional side, uh, you know, we are coming to our offices. They're already probably invested to our gold ETFs. And uh, I, I would love in the future if, uh, if Bitcoin and gold were simultaneously held in a, in a sort of like a, a hard uh, de-risk type of portfolio. And, and if we had sound money, uh, I think that, that would be amazing. We didn't talk much about this uh, at this uh, podcast, but... Uh, to the uh, just the part, parting thoughts why why buy bitcoin and why buy gold in a portfolio um, one of uh, one of the reasons is uh, today there is around nine trillion dollars of bonds with negative interest rates uh, that is uh, about uh, half of the GDP of the United States uh, which is around 18 trillion Europe is around 13 trillion China is around 11 can you imagine like you, we are used to an environment where uh, every 30 years or so, your money worth half as much as it used to, and uh, your bonds are paying negative yields. There's there are things that are fundamentally wrong with you know yeah. the financial ecosystem, and, and any ways out is uh, 
or any any innovation in the space that could help returning to sound money <laughs> principles is uh, is of interest and it's worth uh, everyone's attention. Yeah, and I, I feel like we're we're going to continue seeing case studies. Right now, it's Turkey, but tomorrow it could be India or you know any of these other countries where we see a case study where these governments cannot help themselves. They they always want to print more money to pay for more things. Uh, whether it's out of corruption or out of good intentions, too. Um, and we'll, we'll continue to see the case for sound money being made. Um, so thanks for coming on, Kabor. Uh, we will put a link to your, your Twitter, to Vanek, uh, in the show notes uh, so that our audience can connect with you and uh, help you out with making the case for Bitcoin uh, and making the case for having Bitcoin and the financial system uh, work together for a, a better future. Thank you guys. I love that. And uh, to be continued. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah, thank you for so much. What is the difference between an excuse and a reason? Hmm. Kind of a good question, right? Sure. Okay. And the reason it's a good question because there's there can be legitimate reasons why things happen. Yeah. Right. And so, for instance, you're in a in a sailing race, right? In Sweet. a sailboat. Sure. And the mast snaps in half. Now you don't win the race. Yeah. But I mean, you didn't, you know, the mast snapped. Mm. What can you do about that? Or the weather's the horrible weather rolls in and you can't launch your aircraft so you can't go on your mission. Right. Well, you can't control the weather, so you know like what's up? How can that? That's a reason. Or you get really sick, so you can't compete in a competition. That's a reason. You know, you were sick. Or you do bad because you were sick, and you. It's a reason could be called. Now, now you could look at the situation and say, okay, if I'm going to take ownership of this, did I properly test the mast? Sure. Did I? Yeah. Let me ask you this. Did we have a ground-based plan for the operation in case the weather came in, we were going to take vehicles instead? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That would work. If you get sick before the competition, maybe you ask yourself, were you resting properly? Were you eating properly going into the competition so you wouldn't get sick? Hmm. You could address that, correct? Yes, sir. So... You can still take ownership of things even if the initial reaction is like, oh, there's, you can't control that. Well, you can influence it. You can mitigate it, right? Now, can there still be legitimate reasons? Yes, there can. And for me, the, the, the difference, the line between an excuse and a reason is a reason you have zero control over. Right? You, have ze- you just have zero control over something happening. Well, that's a reason. Did I tell you I was almost late the other day for something? <laughs> uh, no. Because this is borderline. This is borderline. Uh-huh. I had an appointment at 10 o'clock. I left. My, it was a 20-minute drive. Mm-hmm. I left an hour. I left at, well, I left about 9, 10. I left 50 minutes mm-hmm. to drive 20 minutes. Right. Just so going to make it on time. Yeah, yeah. I get on the road, basically a couple roads out of my house, and the one entry way to get on the freeway is locked down. Locked down. Mm. 
like incident, like isolate some incident. Incident. Went on, uh, kind. Uh, a guy trying to kill himself. Okay. On a bridge. Yeah, yeah. Shut the road down. Incident. Yeah. So no one's going on the highway. So what is it? Everyone's being channelized into marginal. What are they called? Back side streets. Yeah, yeah. Re-routed. Detours. Rerouted. Detour. Yeah, yeah. The clock is ticking, and <laughs> and I made it. Right, I made it. I was four minutes. I had four minutes to spare. So instead of it taking twenty minutes, it took whatever forty six minutes. It took more than twice as long. Mm. That that could be, you know, a fairly Legit. legitimate reason. Mm-hmm. Now, luckily, I had I always you know I, I had planned that there could be something out of my control, and it might take even longer. And that's why I leave early to go to an appointment or a situation like that. So. I could have also checked the traffic prior to leaving and taking a completely different route. Mm. That would have been, I blame myself. Yeah. So even in that situation, I'm kind of, I, I was thinking the whole time, what, why, did it, why didn't I check the traffic before I left? I knew this could have happened. Mm. So anyways, in my opinion, an excuse is when you blame something that you could have controlled. And a reason is something that you have absolutely no control over whatsoever. You know, you think of like a legit disease. I mean, sometimes people have, they just don't, you can't control that. It happens. But I think, and I think this is the important part. I think that what you will find, especially when you approach the world with an attitude of extreme ownership, and that's that you're not going to make any excuses, you're not going to blame anyone else, is that you actually have a lot more control over things than you think you do. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before. When I go to the airport, I get there really early mm-hmm. because it's something that you have no control over. You're going to stand in that TSA line, and those people are going to take forever, and that's the way it is. And if you want to get mad at them, it doesn't matter. You yeah. can't. You can't control. You <laughs> cannot control it in any way. You can stand at the back, and my flight's leaving in 30 minutes, and they'll be like, "Whatever. You should have showed up earlier." Yeah. You can't control it. So in those situations, how do you control it? You show up early. You take ownership of it. You show up early. You don't just, oh, I don't know what happened. The traffic was bad. I mean, it's, there's a million excuses you can give. Yeah. If you get that attitude where you're not going to make excuses, you'll actually take ownership of the things, and then you'll actually solve problems before they even happen. If I'm going to an appointment and I have the excuse in my back of my head that, you know what, if I'm late, I'll just say it was the traffic, yeah, yeah. I have a <laughs> much more increased chance of being late. Yeah. All right, so what's what, that's that's one of the things that makes extreme ownership hard is it hurts your ego. It hurts your ego. It hurts your ego to admit that you have control over things that went wrong. That's that there it's your fault that hurts your ego. Yeah. It's also effective because of that. It's effective because you solve problems like I said before they even happen. You solve them because you take ownership of them. Yeah. 